El pueblo unido jamás será vencido. Dios, así como votamos por ti, ahora salte, salte afuera, dale la mano, danos un apoyo, porque te necesitamos. Así como votamos por ti, así ahora nosotros te necesitamos. Por lo menos sacar la mano por la ventana y decirlo, está bien, algo ya. Comprometa, tú, tú prometiste que nos ibas a dar, como dijo el compañero. Necesitamos, necesitamos que tú salgas y nos des la mano. Por favor, te lo suplico, porque tenés corazón y tienes tu familia también. Acuérdate que tienes familia. Hoy somos nosotros. No sabemos si el día de mañana seas tú cuando andes en silla de ruedas. O no sabemos cómo vas a andar, pero vas a necesitar de nosotros también. Por favor. Por favor, te lo suplicamos, porque no somos personas jóvenes, necesitamos los jóvenes, los viejos, y tú necesitas de nosotros, no te olvides de nosotros, saca la mano tan siquiera, saca la mano tan siquiera, por favor, por favor. guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about the uh, an Ellis Act pr- protest that I was at just yesterday. Uh, the results from the CD12 election, uh, as disappointing as they were. And then uh, we're going to go talk about uh, some goings on with the sheriff's department that is uh, very interesting of late. Uh, talking about a cancellation of a very important jail contract uh, from the Board of Supervisors. Then we're going to dive deep into scooters. So buckle up for that one, even though there's nowhere for you to have a seatbelt. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, It's going pretty well. It's been uh, an interesting week, uh, to say the least. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in LA and some really like big and important stuff too, uh, especially with the jail. So I'm just kind of excited to jump into that. I'm kind of like, I didn't do all that much interesting stuff this week, but I will be next weekend. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, yeah. So you want to talk about the, the Ellis Act protest first? Cause that was, uh, quite a day yesterday. So I was following this on the live stream that y'all had up and there were a couple of them, yeah. uh, but just watching that gigantic ball that they made, like travel through downtown was pretty fun. Yeah. So that the ball is actually like a giant paper mache art piece that was created by somebody else for another project and has just been sitting in storage. Um, but the tenants association that was at the heart of this protest, cause they're talking about being, uh, Ellis acted, uh, was able to borrow it and then basically paper mache some new slogans on top of it, talking about how, uh, Ellis is hellish and how it's a racist law and then just really trying to raise some awareness. And I got to say that in terms of ways to capture people's attention as you're walking around in downtown, rolling around a, you know, six foot diameter giant white paper mache ball really catches the attention of onlookers. Yeah, I was going to say, I noticed uh, that there was at least one point on the live stream where like a woman, while I think y'all were waiting at a light, was just like telling the story of fighting her own eviction um, yeah. just completely unprompted and was like, oh, hey, I'm going through this too. Um, so clearly it was having like a positive effect and like people resonated with it. Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely was connecting with folks. Uh, so basically what happened was we started out the protest at Pershing Square, um, which is conveniently located right at the heart of where every protest starts in Los Angeles, it seems. And then yeah, we rolled much. the ball. Yeah. But, well, it also is conveniently located right next to uh, Miguel Santiago's uh, downtown office. So we were able to roll the ball just a couple of blocks over to get to his office. And then we set up shop in front of the office. We didn't block the sidewalk, but we definitely took up a significant portion of it and uh, held a little bit of a rally out front while Trinidad went up to go and try to make contact with Miguel Santiago, only to discover that there was a ton of security and that nobody was there. So yeah, we were sense. foiled in that attempt. We then uh, broadcast the number to call Santiago and yell at him that he needs to not be absent from his office when we come to talk to him and that he needs to not be absent when a vote on the Ellis Act comes up to vote uh, in the assembly because that's exactly what he did last time around. So we then uh, proceeded over another block to Broadway and rolled the ball all the way down from 4th and Broadway to 7th and Broadway, which was quite a bit of effort, and then took it from 7th, from 7th and Broadway all the way over to HCID, which is the housing community, housing and community improvement department from the city of Los Angeles. Yeah, you all took it on a pretty was, nice walk. <laughs> yeah, that was, I think the, the total distance was around one and a quarter miles uh, of rolling this ball and chanting and protesting and uh, just marching in solidarity with all these tenants who are facing the extremely uh problematic, let's say, law that is the Ellis Act. So yeah. for folks who don't know what the Ellis Act is, we'll just do a quick little primer on it. Um, yeah. Effectively, it is a law that allows any landlord who is uh, no longer decided, they, they've decided they no longer want to be a landlord and that they want to 
uh, sell their property and turn it into something else, whether that be a hotel or a condominium or tear it down or whatever. Uh, if they want to get out of the landlord game, they are allowed through the Ellis Act to evict their tenants for no cause and just and they, do so. They can they can at some point return to the rental market, but I think they have to keep all the units off the rental market for a minimum of like five years. So you could yeah. conceivably just empty a building and then not rent it Let for it five sit. years if you yeah. wanted to. So that is definitely a possibility. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed and why we are protesting about this is that uh, there are some landlords who buy up multiple buildings and then use the Ellis Act to empty them all out. When this law was originally passed with the purported motivation of saying, hey, if you're a small mom and pop landlord and you want to get out of the rental game, this is a way for you to get out of the rental game. But what it's ended up being used by uh, is, is by these developers and these corporate landlords as a mechanism for converting long-term rent-stabilized uh, apartments into something else. And uh, for that reason, the calls, the demands from the protest was for uh, Miguel Santiago and Wendy Carrillo to actually vote uh, for their constituents the way that they should vote, which is to repeal the Ellis Act. And then also for Javier Becerra, who is our attorney general in the state of California, to put a, uh, a basically a hold on all new uh, Ellis Act evictions and, and put an injunction against this law until such time as a study can be conducted that would actually be able to prove whether or not the law is having a racial bias in how it is being implemented. Because the way that Los Angeles Tenants Union and other groups have rightfully observed is that this law is primarily being used to evict black and brown tenants from poorer communities and displace them so that richer, whiter tenants are able to move in and take over these spaces. It is absolutely a tool for gentrification and it needs oh, yeah. to be stopped. So that's what this protest was all about. It was uh, amazing. We ended up getting to HSID uh, and discovered that they locked their doors as we showed up. So this is a public agency who locked their doors, which were supposed to stay. It's a public lobby that we're supposed to be able to access up until 4 p.m. But they saw a bunch of protesters coming. And, you know, amongst us, we did have some tenants that were there that genuinely wanted to come and ask for the assistance of HSID. Like we weren't all just there to protest. And then there were yeah. also a bunch of people who were tenants who had come to HSID of their own volition that were not affiliated with us at all, who were waiting outside trying to get in. And they couldn't. They couldn't get in because Damn. HSID locked their doors on them. So this That's was one of those situations up. of like why the, the, the fear that some of these organizations have of protest really is just it's dumbfounding and it gets in the way of them conducting their jobs. And it's it was a deeply frustrating protest. But at the same time, like we did raise a bunch of awareness and it was uh, an amazing show of solidarity with these folks that uh, I felt deeply inspired by. So it was no, great. That was really cool. Uh, yeah, it was. I'm sure we're going to have some kind of I hope we can get like a time lapse of that live stream that I recorded because uh, <laughs> the progress of the ball sped up into like a minute and a half to do all that. It's kind of fun to watch. So <laughs> yeah, no, true enough. Uh, awesome. Yeah, no, you can probably make something like that. We'll have to see. Uh, let's. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about uh, the valley. The other which, giant thing that we've been doing yeah, for the last couple months. Which, like, it. This is this was a hard one. So again, like for anyone yeah. who's not aware, there's a special election in CD12, which is the only Republican seat on LA City Council. Uh, very red district. It went blue in the last midterms, where Katie Hill. Uh, at, 
unseated Steve Knight. Uh, and so in the primary that was run in June, uh, Dr. Lorraine Lundquist, who's a, uh, she teaches climate sustainability at uh, CSUN. She's an astrophysicist, which is what her PhD is in. But she beat John Lee, kind of the chosen successor in the primary. So they went head to head in the runoff that was Tuesday, August 13th. And uh, Lee won 52 to 48. Basically, it was like, 52.03 to 47.97 or something like that. So it was like, and that 4% is 1,300 votes overall. So this isn't like a huge margin of victory, especially in a district that has 169,176 registered voters for that election. So um, it was close. And like Lorraine was the underdog the entire time. So like that was one thing that I think in the like euphoria of a campaign and when you're doing that stuff, you tend to put out of your mind, especially after the upset in the primary, is that mm-hmm. this was an attempt to make a huge change. And this was oh, absolutely. Yeah. Even just coming that close is a huge win for those ideas, because those ideas have always been seen as like super toxic up there. Um, and the fact that like 14,000 people showed up for a very off year election, like there's no other elections, at least at the last election, there was also like a, a bond measure on the ballot. This one, it was just a special election. So, you know, not incredibly high turnout, about 19 percent. Um, but that means we motivated a lot of people out. Yeah. So the interesting thing here is that if you look at the number of people who actually came out to vote for both John Lee and for Lorraine Lundquist, I believe it was actually more than the total number of votes that Mitch Englander won uh, in his last election to that office. You got the number for that, Handy? Uh, Yeah, well, it's very close to it. So Mitch got, uh, hold on. So this is on the uh, City of Los Angeles election archives. And uh, we've got... Mitch, uh, unopposed, like he was unopposed in CD12 in 2015 when he ran for the seat, and he got 13,836 votes. What? Uh, Lorraine Lundquist, yeah, Lorraine Lundquist got, I think, 13,007-something, so it's incredibly wow. close. But basically, you know, it, a lot of people didn't, like, have any investment in this election the last time around, and Mitch had been there since 2009. So it's like kind of people are at least waking up and understanding that there should be challenges in these like in mm-hmm. a lot of these uh city council districts where it wasn't before there's mm-hmm. just looking at the doing a quick count here myself looking at the council districts that were up in 2015 there are at least two districts that are unchallenged and i don't think we're gonna see that anymore and i think that's a really really yeah. good trend you know uh Absolutely. garcetti he also got into office on like basically uh, an off-year election that's been um, recentered to line up with actual national elections. But the, f- the last time Garcetti ran, I think he got like, he got like 80% of the vote with like 13% turnout. So he had basically <laughs> so a bad. mandate from like 9% of the city. <laughs> so like, you know, this turnout of like 13,000 people for Mitch Englander in 2015 is like 10% turnout. So like going out and knocking on doors, going out and talking to people, reaching out to people, getting to them where they're at and letting them know about what's going on is a proven model. Like we didn't win this one and we're not going to win everyone. But A, we get to run this again in March. And I definitely Absolutely. hope Dr. Lundquist runs again because, oh, please, like, Dr. she Lundquist. can beat him with the Democratic, Absolutely. like, momentum. She can beat him. And he's only got a year-ish left in the seat, a year and, like, four months. So, yeah, that basically the point with this whole discussion of CD12 is that 
Yeah, it was a tough fight. We were out there. We were knocking doors. We were sweating our butts off because it was extremely hot, and we did feel like we were melting every time we did it. But we can win these. You things. have such a lower bar for heat than I do. Oh. <laughs> like I've been out knocking, and it hasn't been under triple digits a single time. I've been out knocking doors. Oh, fair point. But it's a dry heat. In and like Arizona, cacti right? don't have like cacti don't have shade. Well, no, it used to be, but now it's just like a dusty, dirty, disgusting. And the oh, air quality sucks yeah. out here. It's worse than L.A. Um, it's terrible. But anyways, I'm I'm getting distracted. Um, but yeah, before we spend too much time on this, because I know there's going to be like a lot of talking about what's going on, what our next steps forward are as far as like electoralism and like different people in the movement are looking at this in like different ways. But this has activated and turned out a lot of people. And like with college coming back into session and with the demographics up there continuing to change, like we need to keep pushing. We know that we can beat these folks and we know we've already got them on the ropes because I want to talk a little bit about this before we move on. But like we like we poked a bear we poked a, a nimby oh, bear yeah. that lives yeah, in a, a big caged house. <laughs> and oh my, oh, I don't want to, I'm not giving any of these people like the satisfaction of repeating their names or like yeah. reading their comments. Like if you want to do that, go to knock. We've got the article there. It's been flying around. Uh, LA Mag did some coverage. Yeah, uh, or, you know, Knock.LA. Um, and it's been flying around. Um, uh, LA Mag picked it up. So, like, it's been making waves. And LAPD even came out and said, like, we're banning our officers from participating in these groups. Not clear if that's actually happening because, like, SLO Dints went immediately to the Facebook group and posted, I'm no longer allowed to post here because LAPD just said so. So I don't really know what any of that means, which you're going to have to watch. And then like the lady who founded them also put out like a heartfelt statement about, oh, I feel so bad about this stuff. And it's like, no, you don't. You, you don't. Like, eh? I don't, eh? So, uh, you know, I think one of the, it, like I had a friend hit me up and be like, yo, you guys should moderate these comments. And like, that's kind of antithetical to what we do. Um, just as far as an organizing orientation. And like, it was also just kind of an experiment to see what would happen. And like, a lot of people came out of the woodwork to be like, no, this is really messed up and wrong. Uh, A lot of people came out of the woodwork to threaten to sue us, uh, which was fun. Um, In conjunction with medium.com. Well, yeah, it was, things got all (laughs) sorts of weird. But yeah, what I wanted to say was like, these folks are scared. Like, they're scared because their city is changing. They're scared because, like, the economic situation is changing. They're lashing out in really weird and messed up ways. And, like, I don't think they're folks that can be negotiated with politically, but they can be minimized. Like, we can outvote them. Like, I really think that the limits of John Lee's support is, like, the 14,000 people that showed up to vote for him. You know, I don't think going into the next general, or sorry, the next primary election, um, where he'll, you know, be under be in another top two runoff, and if you fail to secure fifty percent of the vote, you go to another, you know, the the general in November. And I think the momentum is going to be with the Democrats, at least here in California. I mean, that seems to track for me. So I don't think he should get super secure in his seat. But you know, electoralism kind of sucks. You don't win them all. So, um, but that was yeah, a good experience. I, mean, be, and I, I hope that. Yeah. I was just going to say that the only like potential thing that I could see that would get the Lee supporters to really come out in droves is if the prop 13 split role uh, ends up on the primary versus the general. I don't think it will, but that's the only way that I could see it really like 
pushing folks in his favor, mainly because we know that the, uh, the they're going to lie. They're going to lie like a lot, all like all the, the time. Yeah. I actually, oh my God, you really think they're going to do that? Yeah, no. So I ran into a woman who I spoke with who uh, was very concerned about Prop 13 and where Dr. Lundquist stood on the issue in terms of uh, these potential changes that are going to be proposed, which were so, so scary. Um, but what it really comes down to is that, like, look, the Republican folks in the GOP here in California are using the fear tactics, uh, the fear mongering that you can drive behind the this this uh, you know just specter of rising property taxes, which wouldn't actually impact homeowners in any meaningful way. They're saying that this Prop 13 split roll would be something that is an attack on single-family homes in California, which is an all-out, like, just straight-up lie. There's nothing truthful about that whatsoever. It wouldn't even impact all businesses. We're talking only the largest of the corporate landowners and, and businesses who employ uh, large numbers of people. If you're a small business owner, you'd still be able to benefit from the Prop 13 tax uh, shelter that that is provided in that law from 1978. But... This wouldn't take any steps to really diminish the protections that folks no, and, and in, in fact, in, in several ways, enjoy. expands them and also yeah. expands protections for small businesses. But I know that John Lee's supporters were lying to people about this when we were in the last election cycle. So oh, I'm yeah. really like, no, no, no. It's it's mm. going to be like it's going to be a brutal slog, especially when you have like Disney money and the rest of the the dark money that's going to pour in behind that oh, because they yeah. save a lot of money Disney every bucks. every year mm-hmm. on this. But before we get too bogged down in this, um, because we'll have plenty of time to talk <laughs> about city council elections. <laughs> yeah, uh, but let's uh, let's go to our favorite segment. Cops, y'all. But so this week we're talking mainly sheriff stuff, it seems like they're I mean, LAPD, aside from banning their officers from Facebook. Um, oh, no, they also did shoot someone. Uh, they shot a man yeah, named did. John Penny uh, out on the west side. He was unarmed. not dangerous and he sure was unarmed. Was he has not died. Holding a coke um, but it's uh, LAPD is still doing their LAPD thing. Uh, but aside from that, we're going to be talking about the sheriff. Yeah, so the big headline from this past week is that Sheriff Villanueva, Villanueva is up to some seriously, seriously shady shit uh, from Maya Lau, who has been doing an amazing job covering what the sheriff has been up to and is definitely the target of more than uh, her fair share of his ire uh, from the LA Times. She said, quote, uh, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department has launched a criminal investigation into its chief watchdog tied to allegations that the oversight agency unlawfully obtained internal records, end quote. So basically, what this is coming down to is that right before uh, Sheriff Villanueva took office, uh, the watchdog, uh, which his name is Max Huntsman, he's the head of this group, uh, he basically put in requests for personnel files relating to what had been going on for disciplinary hearings uh, and mm-hmm. other matters in the sheriff's department right after the election, but before Villanueva took office because he was, yeah. for some bizarre reason, concerned that some of those records might be altered once Villanueva took office. Uh, according to other reporting that we have seen on related issues, that is absolutely a highly substantiated fear for him to have because there was a woman who actually quit the sheriff's department after 30 something years uh, working there because she felt that it was extraordinarily unethical that she was being pressured to alter these kinds of personnel histories. So, yes, 
on this topic, uh, uh, C- Board of Supervisors member uh, Sheila Kuhl told, said in an interview this past Wednesday that, quote, it looks to be it looks to me to be mostly intimidation. I find it very strange that the sheriff feels it's appropriate for him or his people to have a criminal investigation into the very people we have assigned to oversee them. We passed an ordinance giving Max Huntsman the power to look at personnel files. He was doing it all along under sheriff, former sheriff Jim McDonald. So what it really comes down to is that this is one of the uh, basically innumerable ways at this point where Sheriff Villanueva is coming in and is exercising an extraordinary amount of power that he is not entitled to. Well, it's also something, and this has been thrown around a bit and like, it does really strike me as fitting that people are calling this Trumpian because this yeah. is the exact same thing that like Trump has done to the FBI who's investigating him. And uh, it's also kind of a tactic that like is super obvious to anyone looking to abuse power. I yeah. also don't know what his end game here is going to the be. Investigators. Like, mm-hmm. is he going to send sheriff's deputies to like arrest the inspector general? Like, uh, it's, I, I'm like, that would be a legitimate power crisis for like the County of Los Angeles. And like, if he did that, where the hell would we go as a county? Because that seems like a massive crisis. Or he's just kind of like lashing out impotently and isn't going to do anything and is still just trying to intimidate Huntsman. But like, there's no weight to that intimidation. So I don't know if he's like, you know, uh, willing to do what, you know, Sheriff Joe Arpaio did this to two members of the press here in Phoenix. And I'm not sure if, if Villanueva is ready to go over that line. But like, it's scary as hell that you're seeing those parallels. Yeah, absolutely. And so the uh, what's what's going on here with the sheriff is part of an ongoing trend, right? He is he's been exhibiting these kinds of behaviors for quite some time. And the sheriff's department as a whole and the deputies have been doing some extraordinarily uh, questionable, to say the least, uh, activities over the last number of decades, honestly. And so we're actually going to be holding uh, Ground Game is, is co-hosting in coordination with ACLU, SoCal, and a number of other uh, racial and criminal justice advocate groups. Uh, we're going to be hosting a, a forum relating to what the sheriff has been up to this coming Saturday, uh, August 24th, at Emanuel Presbyterian on the corner of Berendo and Wilshire from 1 till 3.30 in the afternoon. We're going to be talking about what it is that the sheriff is actually doing, the kind of gaslighting that he's been doing of immigrant communities relating to uh, collaborating with ICE. Uh, We're going to be talking about the inflicting of state violence on, uh, on communities of color. Specifically, we're going to be having the life like the lived experience being told by the families of victims and by the trauma that about the trauma that they've received and the ongoing trauma, because these sheriff's deputies are often continuing to harass the family members and arrest people who are friends of the family members or friends of the victims who are trying to do the kind of organizing that's necessary to hold these sheriff's deputies to account for their actions. Well, and they're still, so, they're still on patrol in those same like, Oh yeah. Uh, districts in those same offices rolling through those same neighborhoods like they still have their guns that killed somebody's family member yes absolutely so this is this is one of those things that is is hugely important so if you are in the k-town area or if you have easy access to the purple or red line please 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 come out and say hi uh we're going to be there i'm going to be helping to co-host the event uh bushido you'll still be in arizona but i will be there a bunch of other folks from ground game will be there a bunch of other folks from 
all of our allies in this in this movement um, will be there as well. Uh, come out and join us again. That's from one till three thirty in the afternoon on Saturday, August twenty fourth. Uh, and, and you know, one it's thing just two blocks oh, from sorry. the uh, Wilshire, Vermont uh, metro station, so it's super easy to get to. You know, and one thing that I think you'll also be talking about that you didn't mention in that is the jail contract getting canceled because that's going to significantly affect how the L.A. County Sheriff's Office operates in L.A. And um, it's going to be an interesting one because Villanueva is also uh, getting told no again. Yeah, so I was actually at the County Board of Supervisors hearing on Tuesday where they were discussing whether or not to renew this contract. So there was a motion that was put forward by, um, I believe it was... I believe it was Sheila Kuhl and Mark Ridley Thomas, but I don't know for sure. And I apologize. The point is that everybody ended up voting for it other than Catherine Barger, because Catherine Barger is the only uh, staunch Republican on the County Board of Supervisors. So that's why she doesn't vote. They're a lonely species. Yes, they are, thankfully so, in Southern California. Basically, this, was, this, was, this whole motion was about whether or not to uh, cancel, because there was a, there's a clause within the contract that would allow the county, uh, because of changing circumstances, to basically back out of this contract that they had with the developer to come in and tear down the Twin Towers facility, which is Men's Central Jail, which exists just north of downtown. Uh, it was a $1.7 billion contract that had been issued. Uh, based on a study that said like what the ongoing number of uh, increasing bed count that was going to be necessary to keep up with the growing population in L.A. County and, you know, the ongoing criminalization of all of the things that are criminalized here in L.A. County. They basically said, like, OK, well, we can't just get rid of this jail. We need to replace it with something else. And so mm-hmm. back in February. A coalition of groups headed, uh, spearheaded by Justice LA, which is a group that was, uh, I forget if it was founded or is simply led by Patrice Cullors, uh, who is an amazing advocate for jail and prison abolition. Um, it's this coalition that's supported by a huge variety of racial and criminal justice organizations that center around the fact that, like, Honestly, you cannot get well in a cell, whether that's in terms of your mental health or in terms of rehabilitation after committing a crime. Jails simply do not work as environments for people to be rehabilitated and reintroduced into society. Well, and so it, in it's it's been known. I remember like Sheriff Baca mm-hmm. when he was still in office, you know, which is like almost a decade ago, I want to say. Right. Yeah. McDonald mm-hmm. came on the scene in like 2013. Yeah, it's been. Anyway, so Baca back during his time it's used to say, you know, Men's Central Jail is the largest mental health care facility in the country. And mm-hmm. he's like, this is really broken and we need to fix this. Like, this has been an ongoing issue for decades. Um, yeah, there's so- still a lot of questions around what this is going to mean as far as what this possible mental health institution is going to look like. Yeah, so that was what had happened back in February was the um, the original plan for the contract had been to replace the jail with a newer, cleaner, better jail, right? One that is not as outdated as Men's Central is and one that would be purportedly more humane for the inmates, um, let alone the whole situation with the uh, gangs of sheriff's deputies who are harassing and abusing prisoners on an extraordinarily regular basis based on the fact that they uh, there's now an FBI investigation into this and there was an FBI investigation into it before, which is why Lee Baca is uh, still, I believe yep. he's still not in jail, but he's supposed to be in jail. It's complicated. Anyway, yeah. back in February, there was a huge motion um, and push by uh, Justice LA and their, uh, their affiliates to come in and basically demand that the Board of Supervisors change this contract so that instead of just building a new jail to replace the old one, that they actually 
uh, do something better with it. So the plan at that point was to push for creating a mental health facility that would actually provide the kind of services that are needed because thanks to Reagan, we don't have any kind of mental health services, public mental health well, services. Well, you know, and I, I do want to, you know what, I do want to point out that you can't just blame Reagan. I know. Uh, because that that's, legislation that's was pushed by like the left it was at that time. Every, everybody it was pushing just, it, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's Reagan signed it, but it wasn't his idea. Well, I mean, no, the the it, it was, was the, his idea to then not like continue funding not funding the kind of services we yes. we did need. Yeah, like that was all <laughs> yeah. his idea. But okay, the original so, like let's get rid of the asylums uh, was was not very fair point. So there, you know, do credit where it is due. It's not entirely Reagan's fault that, uh, the public health institutes in uh, public health institutions in California were dismantled. Uh, but it is his fault that we didn't get anything to replace the completely broken system of conservatorship that we did have after the fact. So, yeah. uh, that point being here is that as, as you mentioned earlier, the Los Angeles County jail system is the largest jail system. Uh, it's the largest provider of mental health in, I believe the country. Uh, it is also the largest jail system in the world. And we know that we do not need more beds in that system. There was a, a study that had been put out by the department of, um, mental health. And I believe the department of public health in coordination together came out and said that something like 53 to 56% of the inmates who are currently imprisoned in the LA County jail system could easily be diverted from jail into another system. Uh, it was basically using community, um, community care programs and new infrastructure that would be much more dispersed and uh, available within communities rather than just all centralized in these in these uh, and, and something that's going to become like the way that this is implemented is going to become hugely important uh, in the wake of phasing out cash bail. So like depending oh, yeah, on what happens absolutely. with the lawsuit that's got an injunction on that, you know, we're looking at, you know, it, it, the algorithms aside, but we're looking at what happens once you're told like, hey, we're not going to hold you in jail. Um, we're going to let you go. And whether that leads to a, a trial date or like to some other type of diversion or like intervention mm -hmm. program that's, I don't know, maybe healthy. Yeah. It's these funny things like actually trying to get people well enough so that they can go back and be a contributing member of society rather than just somebody who is perpetually cycling in and out of jail, which is the whole reason why like the anti-recidivism group, uh, uh, the ARC, Anti-Recidivism Coalition, why they exist uh, is because this is such a broken system. So anyway, long story short here, it was a huge event. There was a, a press conference before the um, before the hearing started, uh, a bunch of amazing speakers were out at that. Uh, we filed into the auditorium. 225 people signed up to give public comment on this. And so even if those comments were all just held to one minute, we're looking at like almost four hours of public comment if there were no interruptions. And believe me, there were interruptions. So it was a uh, quite an ordeal. We've got a bunch of really great audio clips and we're going to share some of those with you now. The inmate reception center received... Chief, the, is, there, it, is there an end to this story? Yes, there... <laughs> I'm, I'm coming to the end, ma'am. Hi, speaker, my name is Adele Andrade-Stadler, Chairwoman Hahn, and Honorable Supervisors. I'm currently the mayor of Alhambra, which is a charter city in the 5th District. 
Um, I'm prior to that, I was on the school board for 14 years, and we witnessed the rise in expulsions and suspensions, which actually was commonly referred to as the school to jail pipeline. Our board worked with law enforcement and our families with a gateway mental health program. We turned, we worked with trauma versus kicking them out. Um, we reduced the numbers and in school, and I really would like us to, um, to move in a treatment-needed direction. I commend Supervisor Solis and Kuhl for being part of a progressive, smart, and caring, um, a la Father Boyle type of leadership. The data is proof. Um, so I say scrap the contract and support 1473A and 23. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Next speaker. Hi, my name is Chris Roth. I'm with Ground Game Los Angeles. I'd just to take, like to take a moment and say that all of the previous comment is deeply upsetting and has no place in this conversation right here. We know that people cannot get well when they are locked up in a cell. That is why it is on the back of all of these t-shirts. It should be the guiding principle for ending the carceral state that we have here in the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles. We have the largest jail system in the world. We need to be working to dismantle that system and end this just top barbaric practice of putting people into these conditions where their mental health deteriorates and where everybody in society is in a worse position because the costs on society are not just in people being taken away from their families, but breaking up the entire community. People are having to spend all of this extra money to go through these rehabilitation programs that they cannot get through the county, which needs to be taking place. Thank you very much for considering this option. My name is Tab Rhodes, and I come here today as a resident of Los Angeles County and president of the Los Angeles County P Professional Peace Officers Association, an organization of over 9,000 members. Men's Central Jail, built in the 1960s, is now dungeon-like and only relevant due to its capability to house 4,400 inmates. POPA members, employees represented by other county unions, as well as the incarcerated citizens of the county deserve a safe environment in which to live and work. At this critical juncture, after spending 10 years, countless hours of involvement by numerous county agencies, and tens of millions of taxpayer dollars on this project, anything less than forward progress on a downtown jail replacement is unacceptable and irresponsible. The county needs a downtown jail. The community needs the ability to house individuals who commit serious crimes. No amount of diversion is going to reduce this need, and every moment our members work in that decrepit facility known as MCJ, they're in danger, danger of violent assault or worse. Please reconsider this issue on behalf of your employees, the silent majority of the community, as well as those currently incarcerated. Thank you. Uh, next speaker. Hi, my name is Adriana Bautista, and I just want to state that I believe the last few speakers were speaking from a place of fear and that um, some of this fear might have led uh, this board to reconsider uh, the McCarthy contract to continue it, but I want to urge you to please um, uh, stop backpedaling on this board's own plans to put care first and take the time to unwaveringly represent the people of this county by terminating the McCarthy contract and seek real expertise in an open and transparent manner from the community itself. 
Please allow the Office of Diversion and Reentry and Health Departments to provide leadership with their evidence-based methods to report on conditions and effectively uh, and effective methods to close Men's Central. As a lifelong county uh, of LA resident of LA resident and former City of LA employee, I want to urge the board to vote with the people for the people. All right. So. At the end of the day, the vote on this measure, uh, on this motion rather, uh, split exactly as we expected it to, 4-1, with Catherine Barger as the only uh, vote dissenting. So what's going to happen now is that the contract is canceled. They're not going to be building this mental health facility. They're going to be looking and they're going to be conducting a study as to what it is that can be built instead and how we can change the allocation of these resources to better actually uh, put the care for our society on a as a higher priority than locking people up and it is amazing to see the kind of transformation that has been taking place at the county level because you know just like four or five years ago this is something that was you you would not have been able to conceive of it but things are changing yeah, no, it's and a, the uh it's fantastic <laughs> yeah no it's a huge leap forward and the fact that the la county board which is by its design, the most atavistic institution we've got is, by its execution right now, probably the most progressive government body in the state, I would argue. Like, this is like they, they you know, got through rent freezes. They got through two rent freezes. Uh, they stopped a jail. Uh, they stopped a, a different form of a jail. Like, this is all pretty huge. And also going after, like, uh, the skeletons in uh, Alex's closet. So this is all very, very cool to hear. And it sounds like there's going to be more pressure and more opportunities to, like, actually get involved in seeing what this system is going to look like and how they plan it out um, and, you know, where that goes. Because we're also facing down the whole, like, right to shelter sort of thing that might also be coming up. So there's going to be a lot of huge decisions coming up in the, the very near future. I'm, I'm kind of excited to see where they go. And I also know it's going to be a huge fight. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the big things here is going to be, as you pointed out, Mark Ridley Thomas and his position relative to the uh, the right to shelter versus the obligation to shelter, as you mentioned. And we talked about yeah. last week, like that's going to be huge. So that's one of those those sticking points that of the, hey, yes, the County Board of Supervisors is definitely one of the most progressive bodies in the state. But at the same time, like, yeah, there are some issues. Yeah. So uh, let's transition away from sheriffs and uh, we'll talk about uh, my least favorite micro mobility uh, innovation in square, uh, square quotes <laughs> with a question mark. Um the e-scooters, uh, because a big study just came out um, a, a yes. assessing their actual carbon footprint. Because, like, we talk about the fact that they don't have any emissions, uh, which, thank God, because somebody rode by me on one of those old gas-powered, like, two-stroke scooters, and I hate that <laughs> sound. But anyways, yeah, no, those so... Are even though these, like the e-scooters, aren't putting out emissions, what is it actually like to manufacture and maintain and run them? And are they actually carbon neutral or carbon negative compared to like other forms of transport? So let's go ahead and dig into this. And this is going to be like a bit of a long one. But here's the thing. This is kind of the future of how our cities are going to be designed. And there's a lot of balls being dropped by everyone. So if we're not talking about this in depth, we're going to find ourselves like a wash in birds and limes and those companies are going to go bust. And then we're just going to have a whole bunch of like nasty e trash lying around that will attempt to ship off to Asia that won't exactly get recycled in a good way. Uh, and or just get, shipped yeah, like this kind of, because that seems to be what, yeah, they're doing now, so 
there's going to be like a weird dystopian Black Mirror future coming, and we would yes. like to at least discuss it uh, before it gets here. Yeah, so we've been talking about this for a while. Um, I think that if you look back at all of our coverage relating to the e-scooters, nothing has really changed all that much other than me saying that I've had some fun riding them. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and say I'm not going to ride them anymore because let's just pull straight from the headline from Vox. Quote, we regret to inform you that scooters aren't actually good for the environment. What a shocker that is. So yes, yep. those pesky scooters that you see littering the street corners from Santa Monica through downtown are not actually any good for the environment with some, there's a little bit of a caveat we'll get to at the very end where some of them are maybe useful, but the net costs definitely don't outweigh the benefits as far as I'm concerned anyway. So okay. there's a study from environmental research letters that was released back at the beginning of the month that is underlying all the reporting on this issue. Quote, we find that environmental burdens associated with charging the e-scooters are small relative to materials and manufacturing burdens of the e-scooters and the impacts associated with transporting the scooters to overnight charging stations. End quote. In fact, 50% of the, quote, average value of life cycle global warming impacts of 202 grams of carbon dioxide equivalent passenger mile, end quote, man, that's a mouthful, comes simply from the manufacturing process of these scooters. So half of the carbon footprint of these scooters comes from manufacturing. But a whopping 43% of the rest of the impact comes from the collection and charging of the scooters. So it's those bands, really they're really... always blocking the, uh, the bike lanes that I'm trying to oh, ride yeah. in because they're collecting scooters for the night. Yeah, that's, that's the ones because oftentimes they're idling and those are definitely don't have any real uh, MPG requirements on them. Um, but yeah, so it's not really much of a surprise that the manufacturing process accounts for so much of the carbon footprint of these scooters because that's just kind of how it works whenever you're talking about any kind of an electric vehicle. We know that the lithium ion batteries that are needed to run these things rely on rare earth metals that are, uh, and the mining of those elements has a really, uh, a pretty devastating environmental impact. One of the things I want to point out is, you know, we necessarily have to ship these from China across the Pacific to the U.S. in order to use them because they're all manufactured in Asia, especially because of the reliance on like the really high tech batteries and everything, uh, especially uh, and, and also China's like closeness to the rare earth mineral mines, which like and cornering we of that market, don't yeah. have here in the U.S. and we wouldn't really want like those kinds of mines create an insane amount of toxic waste compared to like other mining. And we do have big rare earth mineral deposits here in the U.S. It would just be incredibly toxic and take about five to ten years to actually bring a plant like that online. And so when we're talking about these things going forward, it's like maybe we really shouldn't have as many of them because the option of like manufacturing them domestically even comes with huge environmental drawbacks. Yeah. And so the actual transportation of the scooters from China to the U.S. is a pretty small contributing factor relative to the, the rest of it. It's the manufacturing process itself, the acquisition of the materials, uh, the, the pollution that comes from those factories definitely outweighs what they get off of those ships that uh, the, the, the massive cargo ships, mainly because though those massive car cargo ships are huge polluters, they're transporting so much cargo that the scooters really account oh, yeah, for yeah. a minimal impact. But the thing no, that's but really it's also, it's also to point out, well, mm -hmm. never mind. Nah, never mind. <laughs> 
But what may surprise most folks is that how much the charging process really plays into these emissions. And it's not really coming from the power station that generates the electricity that's charging these batteries. So every day, at the end of the day, these scooter companies employ thousands of folks to act as quote-unquote chargers, or in the case of Lime, they call them quote-unquote juicers because they're so clever, to drive around huh. the city and collect scooters, yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that, from the various places where they've been dumped throughout the day. Often they're relying on that damnable chirping noise to locate the more hidden of their number. And honestly, as somebody who lives in downtown, that is like the chorus that I get to fall asleep to. It's not like crickets chirping. It's the damn lime scooters and their chirps to say like, I'm here, come find me. So yeah, those are obnoxious. Um, They then take these, these scooters, they collect them all up into these vans or whatever, and they transport them over to a shed, garage, or whatever space that they've got where they can be batch charged and processed for some minor repairs. Once the scooters are back up into working condition and fully charged, they're then driven back around the city and deposited in locations where they think where Lime or Bird or whoever thinks that customers are most likely going to be picking them up from the next day to be used. So it's the driving, honestly, that is contributing so much to the carbon footprint of these scooters because the scooters can't just charge themselves the way that like if you were to go and rent a Metro e-bike from the Metro bike system here in Los Angeles, those things just charge at the docking station. Like they don't need to be picked up by a van and taken someplace to be charged again. They just charge on on the station. So that's something I've been thinking about because like Jump and all of these other companies, they, you know, including Lyft, have decided that uh, the driving business is not profitable. So they want to be in not just the e-scooter business, but also the e-bike business. So like how does me taking like a jump bike uh, compare to like me riding one of their scooters? In relative terms, as Vox summarized, quote, scooters typically produce more emissions than a standard bus with high ridership, an electric moped an electric bicycle, a regular bicycle, or good old-fashioned carbon-free walking. And I apologize, I'm adding old-fashioned in there because it felt necessary. Um, So what's really also very deeply troubling here is that according to the Environmental Research Letter study, quote, almost half of scooter riders say that they would have biked or walked instead, end quote, if the scooters hadn't been available. And frankly, both of those options are much more like dramatically better in terms of the carbon footprint than using the damn scooters. So yeah, the and people it's, who it's are using scooters that, are using them to make things worse, not better. Well, and it's, it's something that's troubled me too, because I've never believed that like the scooters would replace a car drive for most people, right? Like they would still generally drive yeah. if the distance is longer than the than like maybe a mile or so. And I don't blame them. Like the scooters aren't really that comfortable to ride for like super long distances and Especially not the on streets of LA streets are like pretty dangerous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um uh, with bikes it's a little bit different, but you can see the the, you know, mileage that somebody would ride on a bike perhaps extending a bit especially with some like, you know, protected bike lanes, but I've always felt like this is competing with other forms of uh, micromobility or active transit in this case. And that's really bothered me because I I don't feel like they are taking cars off the road. And it seems pretty conclusive. They're putting cars on the road to collect them and do the whole recharging thing. Absolutely. So Lime, in response to this study, released a statement that says, quote, We welcome research into the environmental benefits of new mobility options. However, this study is largely based on assumptions and incomplete data that produces highly variable high variability in the results. We believe micromobility. We believe micromobility will reduce 
pollution and mitigate climate change, end quote. You know, it's funny because they, they release that statement and they don't actually back any of it up with facts because um, the, the, the study says otherwise. But let's get back to how these scooters are well, currently being used. Well, and also, like, used. you know, yeah. none of these companies have any vi- viable path towards, like, profit. No, no, not at all. So somehow <laughs> they're just like generating a, a <laughs> yeah, they're generating just a, a ton of scooters and it's just like the widget problem gone wrong. But so yeah, let's, let's talk about how we're seeing these like fit into our current like kind of transportation landscape. Exactly. So we know that these scooters are absolutely trashed throughout their daily use. There are like Instagram accounts that are set up to talk about people uh, to showcase videos and, and footage of people just burning scooters, knocking scooters over, throwing them into lakes, throwing them into ponds, fountains, whatever, uh, you know, throwing them off of buildings. It, it's pretty vicious out there. So these things get parked very poorly. They get knocked over. They uh, folks do maliciously act to destroy them or vandalize them. Uh, and they, they do not last. They, these scooters really no. just are not. They're meant to last like two to three years. They definitely don't. So well, that was one th- of the things in the study is they said that they could not, th- there was no information out there on the actual life cycle of a scooter. So they estimated Ha-ha. 18 months. And I well, think that that is uh, very optimistic. You say that. And then there's this thing from Quartz who did their own study to prove that these things get replaced after barely uh, 150 miles of usage. So they conducted a study. Oh, my God, that is so Uh, much worse than I thought. It's really, really bad. So they there's uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, introduced scooters back in August of 2018, and they were collecting data and making it publicly available as part of the introduction of these scooters into their market. So from August until December, they collected and, and published all this data. And then I, th- I think they started changing how they were collecting it after that. Um, but mm-hmm. anyway, Quartz did a study based off of that. And here are some of their key details, because it is truly Horrifying, And I mean, this is just for Louisville, Kentucky, so maybe it's not applicable to L.A., but eh, let's just say it would have to be way different for it to be uh, in any way like a good thing. So the average lifespan of one of these scooters in Louisville, Kentucky was 28.8 days. The median lifespan was only 26 days. So half of the scooters didn't even make it for 26 days. And the uh, and and that was half of them uh, made it to that point. So the average vehicle went 163.2 miles over a total of 92 trips during its lifetime. Five of the 129 initial cohort scooters disappeared the same day they went into service, which is a lifespan of zero days. The scooter nice. with the longest lifespan. <laughs> yeah, somebody just took that one and made it into a bootleg bird scooter. Uh, so the long, the scooter with the longest lifespan made it to 112 days, uh, last appearing in the data on November 29th. So when you're talking about an 18 month life cycle and the longest that any single scooter in the study lasted was 112 days, like that is, that's falling short by a pretty good margin. So only seven of the 129 scooters lasted for more than 60 days. Uh, it's pretty brutal. So 
uh, <laughs> these, these scooters do not last and they're being treated as truly disposable objects. So courts further calculated that after the operating costs and fees are, are factored in, Bird is only recouping $67 on the cost of the average scooter. Comparing that Damn. to the $551 figure that was reported back in October for what Bird was actually paying to acquire these scooters, that means that at least in Louisville, Kentucky, Bird was losing $484 per scooter that they deployed. So I, I want to ask, um, and maybe you have the answer to this, maybe not, but mm-hmm. when they pull the scooters out of service, like, are they being cannibalized for parts and stuff? I mean, not that that makes this any better, um, but are they at least like, are they extending the other life cycles of scooters by like, you know, swapping in parts when stuff goes bad? Or like, do we know what happens once the, the scooter disappears from the street? I, I don't know that that was actually covered anywhere. I didn't see it in the reporting. Um, but I will say that having seen these scooters like all over the place in L.A., when they start to get looking pretty rough, it's hard to imagine that there's anything that can be taken from those scooters after they've reached the end of their lifespan and put onto another scooter and reused. Like this is this is uh, a huge problem for them to be dealing with here. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to imagine how these loss-leading companies ever expect to really make a profit in this space. Uh, And it's even harder to imagine how these scooters could ever become ecologically sustainable in the long term. Um, But the study from the Environmental Research Letters offered a couple of recommendations uh, as to how that might be possible to achieve. And uh, let's just say that I think they're going to have a real hard time getting these things through. So first one. Allow the scooters to remain in public areas overnight, decreasing the driving burdens associated with picking up fully charging, uh, fully charged or nearly fully charged scooters. So this is something that we don't actually have a problem with here in L.A. because if the scooter doesn't get picked up, they just leave it. and Nobody's dealing with it overnight because if it's in an area that is allowed to be parked in, uh, nobody cares. Um, so I don't th- think that see that one, at least well, here in L.A., being meaningful. The, the city of Santa Monica cares. They'll, they'll impound oh, that yeah? stuff. Ah, oh yeah, no. They used to they used to impound them while people were riding them on the bike path. <laughs> yeah, they sent a bill to to lift and lime, and or sorry, to uh, bird and lime, and bird paid it, and lime was like, "We're not going to pay it. You can keep the scooters." And oh, the city man. was like, "We're going to sue you," and made it like public knowledge. And then lime was like, "Okay, we'll pay you, but we still don't want the scooters back." Oh, fun, fun, fun. So the second recommendation that was made was to streamline the collection and redistribution process of scooters so that contractors aren't wasting gas as they zigzag all around the city in their cars trying to find the scooters. Okay, so one of the key things that is like one of the the major uh, selling points behind these scooters is that you can take them wherever you want and you can drop them off wherever you want to drop them off. Like, yes, LA has been trying to implement these little blue demarcation zones, which for some reason they put on the freaking sidewalk, which makes no sense to me. These places where they're people expecting people do respect people to them, them, though. Off. I will say that is like people do respect the little like unenforced parking box. Like it, it better than I'd expect. Mm. That's totally fair. But uh, the, one of the big things here is that if you're trying to get someplace where they don't have one of those parking zones, why would you spend a couple of minutes like riding around the block being charged by Lime or by Bird or by whoever to find a place to park the scooter when you can literally just pull it up and drop it on the curb and be like, yep, we're good. Take the picture and walk away. So the, the, mm-hmm. the idea that they're going to be somehow able to streamline the collection of these scooters, unless they make it so that you cannot end your ride unless you get to a parking space, they're going to have a real hard time with that. But 
I can only imagine how much that would decrease the usage if people realize, holy shit, we can't like, I cannot end my ride unless I go find a parking space for this thing, which totally defeats the purpose of it being dockless and would be kind of hilarious. Uh, The third point that they bring up here would be to allow these contractors who are doing the charging to quote, claim certain scooters for collection and eliminate unnecessary and competitive driving. So that one, like, yeah, I, I, I get that. That's actually something that could be done pretty easily. I think, uh, through an app, the the ability to claim the scooters would actually be something that they could implement and and make a meaningful difference in terms of the amount of just uh, driving back and forth and people actually collecting the scooters in a meaningful way. But at the same time, like it's going to be a very hard problem to actually optimize. So mm, skeptical still. Uh, the fourth option that they produce as far as a way to make these things greener is to incentivize or acquire the use of efficient vehicles for collecting and redistributing the scooters. So yeah, that would definitely help. And that's also something that can be done through the app. Um, I don't know how they're going to actually enforce that because these companies don't really have the ability to enforce any of these things, uh, which then actually comes down into the final recommendation, which is to enact and enforce anti-vandalism policies to reduce scooter damage, which can result in short lifetimes for the vehicles and thus high material and manufacturing burdens. Good luck. Good luck convincing like LAPD that it is their responsibility to police the uh, anti-vandalism rules relating to bird and lime scooters. Like that ain't going to happen. That's not their job. And if you want to have it be their job, good luck. Like, <laughs> I don't know yeah, what that's a, that one's a, thinking of doing. That one's a, a pretty that one's a pretty terrible um piece of advice so i understand what they're going for there because like just dumping your e-scooter trash on the street uh allows it to be like vandalized especially when they're not asking for prosecutions of people who uh vandalize their stuff because they don't want to actually claim ownership of it because um, then they're responsible it, for all, it being abandoned everywhere. yeah it's just this whole like legal absolute cf of ridiculous logic um, that I, I'm still amazed that any of these companies like went to a big VC firm and were like, give us a billion dollars. And the guys sitting <laughs> on the other end of the table were like, you know what? Here's a billion and a half. That, what you just said, <sighs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, so honestly, the whole I can't We're just going to lose a shit ton of money. It's, it's great. On the whole part where scooter. like you, yeah, you make 10% on the purchase price of the scooter and then just like I'm left holding the bag while your well, executives get seven figures. Fair, Sweet. To be fair, they're expecting that they can get the price per scooter down to the $360 range. So it's like they're only going to be losing. Five, I mean, in, in the meantime, they're only <laughs> wasting like in the meantime, they're only going to waste $500 a scooter. Like <laughs> eventually they're going to cut the price in half and like in the next mm. decade. Good for them. But uh, yep. So honestly, I can only see how I, I can only see how they can meaningfully implement one or two of those recommendations. The rest of them seem fundamentally incompatible with the reality of life in the big city for these scooters. Like it's just not going to happen. Like you cannot get these dockless scooters that people have been uh, taught that they can just abuse and trash and, and expect that that's going to be somehow changed overnight. Like these things, the way they were rolled yep. out was so just completely like wild west that 
the cat's out of the bag on that and it ain't going to be able to be something that they can capture again. So I, I remember mm. when they first started testing them because they were they were testing the the birds like they first dropped them in Santa Monica right by the office I was working at. And like the kids from the high school next door would just ride them oh, all the time. Yeah. And like that was before they had speed governors like you could freaking haul on those things. Oh, and man. you just had 16 year olds <laughs> with no helmets and like two people on a scooter just like dropping their wrist and flying by you. And you're like, well, this is clearly a well thought out like business venture like they they clearly didn't just buy a bunch of these things slap a sticker on it and be like all right just sprinkle them across santa monica this will be fun yeah and they're also frankly a public safety nuisance because like i have seen them run people down on the sidewalk and there are videos of of like you know there's security videos out there that you can see of people walking you know minding their own business coming out of like a driveway and it's like a blind corner in some someone is just zipping down the street on a lime or a bird scooter or whatever. Yep. And they do not see the person coming. And even if they did, they wouldn't have time to react because they're going 15 miles an hour on the sidewalk where they are not allowed to be riding in the first place, but it's not actually being meaningful enforced. So yeah. no people, yeah. people have died. Like the EU is actually yeah. pretty uh, upset with the, the scooter companies. Uh, Good. Cause like, it's it, yeah, it's been not a smooth rollout for a lot of country for like a lot of markets. It's also yes. one where it's just sort of like been an absolute CF. And again, like I don't really understand what their end game is here and that this is something that could work within the rubric of like municipalization. Like if Metro was the only one offering these kinds of like bikes and scooters across the city and like was servicing them and had like a plan for accounting for and dealing with them, I would be in a much happier place, especially because we just learned uh, some reporting by uh, Sam Dean at the LA Times that up in San Francisco, uh, a new scooter company, uh, Scoot, has put literal red boxes around neighborhoods that uh, tend to be poor and people of color and said, like, you can't park our scooters in these boxes, Uh, even though, like, that's part of the deal with releasing the scooters is you're supposed to help impacted communities but uh no. yeah they're being given the opt out by the the city in san francisco so it's like i'm gonna need to read that article that sounds terrifying yeah no it's really terrible we don't have time to discuss all the ways that that one's terrible or harkens back to you know just the terrible history of los angeles development but this <sighs> is like these scooters aren't going away and that's kind of bothersome because like we can't yeah. do anything to convince these tech bros that what they're doing is terrible and wrong because they're just wholly invested in making the money. And apparently they are. I still don't understand how. Like, I I don't get it. Like, I grew up on the floor of a hedge fund. My first real job was working for Solomon Smith Barney, like as a management intern running brokers. And I don't understand I- why anyone would ever give them a dollar for this. Like if somebody showed up, it was like the first five years of our business life cycle, we're going to get $5 or we're going to get $10 back on every hundred dollars that we spend of your money. Yeah. Oh, well when does, when do you turn that around? Almost never just do the math. The thing is that like Uber and Lyft are doing like the same shit. So I don't, I genuinely don't understand how our economy is supposed to work like this, but it's not. That's why it's about to break. Like that's why that's, that's why US everything is li- literally US treasuries are below 2% for like 
the first time in a very long time. Uh, yeah, the the uh, time we just shed 800 points off of the Dow because yeah. of uh, jitters, uh, watching the, the yield curve invert, something that happens generally before recessions. And the thing is, like, the analysts are saying it's going to be 18 months before we officially see the recession. But, like, we're all going to feel that pain later because it's a lagging indicator. Like, when they finally get yes, the data is. and look back over the last three months, they're like, oh, yeah, last quarter was negative GDP growth. Yeah, that only takes three months of pain for them to finally be like, all right, we can measure this. So, like, we're going to see the effects of this sooner rather than later. And with things as, like, precarious as they are, where, like, the Dow can have, like, its second biggest point drop ever, um, it's going to come in a flash. Like, that's how this collapse tends to happen over and over again. Um, And it's really going to suck. So... Let's get back to the scooters really quick and wrap this up. The study did also point out as it's the all connected, lining, Chris. I, I know, I know. All connected. To to and the way we solve it is the gold standard. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, was not expecting that one in the response. Oh, um, <clears throat> yeah. So. <laughs> Okay, so getting back to the silver lining and not the gold standard, uh, the study that we're talking about here did also point out that in the event that you're actually using a scooter instead of driving your car uh, and assuming your car gets 26 miles per gallon or less, you're actually in the net positive when it comes to the carbon emissions. So that's good. But at the same time, only 34% of the scooter rides that they recorded uh, actually fit into that category. And again, half of the scooter rides that they recorded were displacing things where people would have either just walked or ridden the bus, which would have been better in the f- or walked or taken a bike, which would have been better in the first place. So scooters, not good, even when they kind of are no. like it's it's. Uh, yeah. So frankly, there are better ways for us to green our transportation infrastructure than these damn scooters. Maybe it's time that bird scooters and their competitors go the way of one of the most famous of birds, the dodo. Hey, yes, I did just get really yeah. bad dad joke there. You're welcome. Ha. No, it's 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 going to be really frustrating because these are the kind of companies that the city of Los Angeles is embracing in the run up to the 28 games. And that's really going to be problematic because they're going to spend a lot of money on fancy, stupid devices to impress international visitors for like, you know, uh, I don't know, two months at the most. And then uh, it's it's all going to fall into disrepair. Yeah, but I mean, people come in and there's like pre-game, like pre-events and then there's post-events and like there's a lot of other stuff that happens. But like it's going to, uh, our city is just going to be so littered with like useless tech crap and uh, it's going to suck. Yeah, it will. So uh, anyway, on, on that note, uh, as uplifting as We always is, end we- on a high note, like always. <laughs> uh, so there, there are actually are a couple of things that we should uh, make sure that everybody's aware of because I'm just going to start making it a, a regular thing for us to tell everybody when Latu has their meetings. So next week on the 21st, uh, we've got the West Side meeting uh, happening is going to be on the 21st uh, from 6.30 till 8.30 p.m. at the Oakwood Rec Center. 
uh, which is at 767 California Avenue in Venice, California. So that's for the West Side locals, 6.30 to 8.30 on August 21st at 767 California Avenue in Venice. Uh, they also have the Mid-City Local Meeting, which is going to be happening on the same day, August 21st from 7 to 9 at uh, Union, uh, which is 4308 uh, ooh, sorry, sorry. It's the Union 4308, which is at 4067 West Pico Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90019. So again, that's for the mid-city local that's going to be meeting up on the 21st from 7 to 9 at 4067 West Pico. Uh, and then there is also the East Hollywood local meeting up from 7 to 9 on the same day, August 21st at 5500 Hollywood Boulevard on the fourth floor. Uh, again, seven to nine, 5,500 Hollywood Boulevard, fourth floor. And then there is, uh, oh man, we're going to, this might be a thing that I need to trim down. Um, there is the East side local, which is going to be happening on the 22nd, the next day on Thursday from 6 30 to 8 30 PM at 346 South glass street. That's G L E S S nine zero zero three three. Uh, they're going to be having the East Side Local Chapter meeting there. Again, that is 346 South Gless Street uh, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And then there is also the South L.A. Local meeting. And what's really great about having all of these locals is that this means that L.A. Tenants Union is growing and spreading. And then tenant advocacy is growing and spreading, and we love it. So... They're going to be meeting again August 22nd, the same day as the East Side Local from 7 to 9 at the Southern California Library at 6120 South Vermont Avenue. Again, 6120 South Vermont Avenue from 7 to 9 p.m. And that's for the South L.A. Local. Uh, yeah, there's good stuff going on out there. And if you guys want to come by one of our ground game meetings, those are always held every Thursday from 730 till about nine, maybe 930 p.m. at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, come by and there are people filing in and out. And if there aren't, somebody will post up a phone number on the outside so you can call and get let in. We'd love to have you come out and join us and talk about what is going on. So as always, if you guys have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org or visit our Facebook page and send us a message there. Or, of course, just send an email on over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Thank you very much, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that deep dive into the scooters and the insanity that it is wreaking upon Bushido and myself. Yeah. Uh, on that note, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take us out. Uh, yeah, so I like the phrase that you used to always say at the end of these, which was to, you know, uh, get organized and stay angry because frankly, that's uh, a damn good motivator to trying to push for the change that we really genuinely need. So, uh, yeah. thank you as always. And, uh, look forward to, to talking to you all next week. Thank you very much.
Thirty-one more. Thirty-one more. Thirty-one more. Thirty-one more. 